This is a story of a man who was ahead of his time. Some say that he had the most important idea of the last 500 years. He may very well have helped to invent the future. He most certainly understood the role trust plays in our modern economy. And he was, of all things, a mild-mannered accounting professor. This show is all about separating hype from fundamental change. I'm Paul Jarley, Dean of the College of Business here at UCF. I've got lots of questions. To get answers, I'm talking to people with interesting insights into the future of business. Have you ever wondered, is this really a thing? On to our show. A few months ago, I received an email from Mike Johnson. Mike is Dean of the College of Sciences, and more importantly, my drinking buddy. The subject line read, Innovations in Accounting. Who knew? I opened the email and clicked on the link to an article entitled, Why Everyone Missed the Most Important Invention of the Last 500 Years. I was skimming the article when Greg Trumpeter walked into my office. Greg is the director of the Dixon School of Accounting, and so I turned to him and said, Hey Greg, have you ever heard of triple entry bookkeeping? (laughs) Triple entry bookkeeping. Indeed he had. It's an idea that came up uh, maybe in the mid to late 1970s. There was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. His name is Yuji Igiri. And he came up with the notion that uh, for four or 500 years, people have been using double-entry bookkeeping as if it was perfection itself. And he said, well, maybe you could make it better. Okay, let's stop right there. I realize a podcast and accounting theory is a bold move. But Dr. Igiri was quite the dude. His obituary notes he was interested in things like the relationship between accounting, quantum physics, and quantum computing. How many people do you think are trying to connect those dots? He didn't strike me as the kind of guy who would waste his time on frivolous pursuits. Uh, Bookkeeping evolved from single entry, which uh, just recorded what happened, to a double entry, where what happened has to be explained by reasoning. Dr. Ajiri might be dead, but in the miracle of today's modern technology, he left behind a YouTube video explaining his ideas around triple-entry bookkeeping. I, uh, I've been attracted by three. Everything three is very interesting and much more complex than two. And what the triple-entry might uh, look like. He challenged a group of PhD students to figure this out. Ten years lapsed when he realized... Nobody is doing anything about it. <laughs> so he decided to take matters into his own hands. Yuji wrote two books on the subject. The second of which... Based on the calculus of taking a time derivative of existing accounting and come up with a new dimension and then create a double entry at that, uh, at that level. I think it has a lots of applications. I know that seems esoteric, but Dr. Ajiri's ideas might just rock your world. As Greg explains, changes in accounting facilitated changes in markets and significantly impacted the geographic scope of trade. A brief history lesson. The Sumerians, I believe, invented single-entry bookkeeping. So describe single-entry bookkeeping for me. Basically keeping track of my cash. It was really simple. At the end of the day, you sort of balanced out your cash. That would have been single-entry bookkeeping. And it had a problem with there could be errors that wouldn't be caught. And there was less accountability because it's really difficult to check on any assets or any liabilities you have other than cash. So your single-entry account was probably a relative. Yeah. Well, and, and the ventures you were involved in were probably very local. It wasn't just that the boundaries of trade were expanding. 
Owners started hiring managers to run the business on their behalf. Somebody other than the manager is the owner. So you have this agency problem where the owners have to have the ability to trust managers. And so trust becomes a bigger issue. Enterprises get larger. It's easier to screw up the books. And so double-entry bookkeeping um, did a couple of things. At at the simplest level, double-entry bookkeeping made it so that uh, debits had equal credits, assets had equal liabilities plus owner's equity. So at the end of the day, there was an internal check on the accuracy of the records. But perhaps more importantly, it gave you better controls. The first book on double-entry bookkeeping was published in 1494. A lot has happened since then. Publicly held companies came along. Auditors followed. Their job is to make sure what is being reported actually happened and that investors aren't being duped. Government regulations followed. Lots of them. 500 years later, double-entry bookkeeping still rules. It's been a remarkable run that's facilitated trust in our financial network. But it's an inherently backward system. Everything is looked at historically. Listen to Melanie Fernandez, a partner at BDO and a College of Business Hall of Fame member. Um, And that's probably the biggest complaint that I get as an auditor is, you know, can't you have more real-time information that is reliable and has been certified? Dr. Ajiri thought he could help by introducing calculus notions into accounting what he calls momentum accounting. So we ha- he argued that um, assets and liabilities is where we are today. Owner's equity is the accumulation of where the company has come from in the past. And the third entry, uh, force, he called it, um, would, would be tied to how we were doing in the future. So if you think about his financial statements that would have come out from the triple entry, he would have a balance sheet, which mm-hmm. is at a point in time. This is our assets, liabilities, and owner's equity. Then you have the income statement, which sort of explains using accrual accounting, how we get from one balance sheet to the next balance sheet. So the income statement is sort of like first difference. Right. And then his notion of momentum, force, acceleration, taking us more into the world of calculus and physics, um, was sort of why last year's income was different from this year's income, much the same way the income statement explains why last year's balance sheet was different from this year's balance sheet. Which might be of more interest to a financial investor. Absolutely. So one of Igeri's points was that investors, if, if in fact the statement just showed that the momentum was this year's income is $30 bigger than last year's income, well, you could do that easily enough. But if the, if the bookkeeping system actually tracked why it was different... And we could see sales were up in part because there was an increase in prices, uh, part and because there was an increase in volume. That would actually be useful information to an investor to see why are profits up and to highlight that on the face of a financial statement. Sorry for the accounting lesson. It'll pay off later when our story takes a sharp turn. Stay with me, people. My next stop is Paul Gregg. So, Paul, would momentum accounting help investors, or can they get that information by other means? They know some of it. Paul is an executive in residence in our finance department. He has a wealth of experience and currently serves as CFO of Rini Technologies. So let's take Apple. Apple discloses in their 10K the unit sales of things like iPhones and iPods. And so one could track those, but the question is, what are they going to be in the future? 
And then one could say, well, let's take Microsoft as an example of where we were all buying our first PC and they had an extremely high growth rate that ultimately leveled off. That's typically what happens to big corporations, that they may go through periods of extreme growth and then they level off. And when you're trying to figure out what those future sales and earnings and cash flows will be, the question is how long will they grow at hyper growth and at what point will they level off? That's where... a, a, a using calculus and other regression tools could help one in saying, well, what would be the case for the iPhone compared to the case for Microsoft? And what would that predict by way of when Apple's growth will start leveling off because we had a similar anomaly when Microsoft was starting off? When I was listening to Greg, I couldn't help but think about our Bloomberg terminals. Um, would you be able to do those kinds of analyses using the data that Bloomberg provides today? Absolutely. I can't help but think that Dr. Ajiri might have invented accounting information systems if computers had been just a little more advanced when he started his work. The timeline is important. UG's second book on triple entry accounting came out just two years after the first version of Microsoft Excel for Windows. We've come a long way since then. Back to Paul. Systems that we use from Oracle and SAP yeah, yeah, yeah. and PeopleSoft, they're all providing the type of management information system. But corporations that spend millions of dollars for these systems are integrating the reporting, the, 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 the fine-tuned reporting data that they and, need to make Dr. Jury would have It's not just debits and credits. That's not to say there aren't weaknesses in today's financial reporting system. Judgment still plays a large role. Managers sometimes manipulate earnings. And people lie for personal gain. But many of our clients push the edge. And uh, frankly, I think it's uh, a problem where the auditors either didn't do enough work or turned the other way in order to keep the client. Uh, From a management standpoint, the pressure to hit earnings is immense from a performance goals and compensation and maintaining the stock price. So the pressure is there. A lot of it is in the revenue recognition area where uh, companies have some ability to manipulate revenues and recognizing revenues, very complex area of accounting. Um, Some of it's just outright fraud like WorldCom where they were basically uh, capitalizing expenses and calling it a capital budget item instead of a pure expense, which is what it was, Mm -hmm. and it materially distorted the, uh, the cash flow statement, the income statement. Ah, now this is where our story takes a sharp turn. I'm sure trust was on Dr. Ajiri's mind when he was developing his triple entry system, but hardly anybody was listening. 16 years after Yuji's second book, a financial cryptographer named Ian Grigg published a working paper entitled Triple Entry Accounting. Triple entry takes us from this inside the corporate trusted scenario and extends it to other customers to outside the company border into other companies. Listen to Ian explain his key ideas. What we can now do is cryptographically sign an entry. Alice signs her payment to Bob. It goes out to some intermediary, which could be the blockchain, could be a server. No, did you just hear that? Which gets signed again and then goes across to Bob. And now we've got three entries which are sitting there. We've got Alice and Bob sitting with their primary copies and if they have any dispute Ivan or the blockchain is sitting in the middle which guarantees that we've all got the same thing. Welcome to blockchain. Bitcoin is released 
less than four years after Ian's paper. Now, the article Dr. Johnson sent me speculated that someone read Professor Ajiri's work, as well as Ian's paper, and produced Bitcoin. Eh, maybe. But I can tell you that Greg's paper doesn't even reference Ajiri. And as Greg and I discuss... It happens all the time in our world, where people from very different fields are working on very similar ideas and, and don't, and even, don't know even know it. And don't even know <laughs> Sorry, Yuji. Ian seems to have come up with his ideas independently. And I can't see where understanding your triple entry accounting system was necessary to create Bitcoin. If you're an academic like me, you can't help but feel sorry for Dr. Ajiri. What happened to him seriously sucked. But none of this means that blockchain won't have a major impact on the accounting profession and the future of trade. In some ways, you can think of today's podcast as the second part of our podcast on Bitcoin. In that podcast, we mentioned that blockchain had the potential to severely limit a company's ability to cook the books. Paul Gregg agrees. It will make verification easier. Much easier. Because today, before we had uh, blockchain, the transactions are documented, except I have my bank and my bank records, and you have exactly. your bank and your bank I'll records. I'll like mine is my business now. Yeah, and, <laughs> but, you know, so we know from each other's side. Uh, but there are plenty of instances, uh, AIG comes to mind, mm-hmm. where there was a transaction that Warren Buffett's insurance companies booked conservatively, and AIG took an aggressive stance, which was not in accordance with GAAP, in order to book the earnings immediately. Okay, if two companies' entries on a transaction are simultaneously verified in real time, what is there left for auditors to do? Trust seems to be built right into the blockchain. When I asked Jim Adamczyk, Vice President of Fairwind's Credit Union, this question, as part of my interviews on Bitcoin, he took the fifth. I'm not answering that question. No. Um, (laughs) It could make their job more efficient and more transparent. Greg is a bit more forthcoming. If, in fact, blockchain takes off, as some people say it will, you'll need auditors to redouble their efforts on control testing. If... Once something goes into the system, it can't be changed. Um, You want to make sure that what goes into the system is right. And so internal controls are going to become even more important than they have been in this post-Sarbanes-Oxley era. It's also worth noting that blockchain isn't the only high-tech way to reduce fraud. Accounting firms are also investing in big data. Back to Melanie. Initially, we'll be using it to, you know, bring in the data and look at it in different ways. Um, that will highlight unusual trends, anomalies, things that we might not have looked at just from, you know, a person trying to analyze data using the human mind um, to really uncover whether there's fraud. I mean, that's really kind of the whole purpose of them spending the money and all this training and everything is to really be able to make it easier for us to identify situations where there's higher risks um, or just outright fraud that may have occurred. And I think there's some, some jobs for people out there that really enjoy that stuff and, get, and, and understand that stuff. Greg agrees. I also think, though, you're going to find accountants are going to be needing a lot more background in inferential statistics, analytical modeling. Uh, that's going to become much more important for auditors. Time to get to the bottom line. Is UG's triple entry bookkeeping system a thing? From Greg Trumpeter. I'm guessing... His thing is not a thing. But, and I also know it, 
took over 100 years before double-entry bookkeeping caught on. From Melanie Fernandez. I know, I've never heard of it. <laughs> I've never heard of triple-entry bookkeeping. From Paul Gregg. No, I think what will happen is we're continuing to have more sophisticated uh, reporting and disclosures that allow uh, analysts to better forecast the results of the company. It's my podcast, so I get to go last. If only Ian had footnoted Yuji, I would be singing his praises as the inspiration for blockchain. But he didn't. And ERP systems ran past any notions of momentum accounting. There was only one thing left for me to do. You remember that email you sent me a while back about innovations in accounting? When we completed this podcast, I went straight to the bar with Mike Johnson. We're talking about triple entry bookkeeping. I am indeed. The most important invention in human history. You owe me a bourbon over sending me down a rabbit hole. I'm happy to pay you the bourbon. It's Woodford Reserve, by the way. So what's your take? Check us out online and share your thoughts at business.ucf.edu slash podcast. You can also find extended interviews with our guests and notes from the show. Special thanks to my producer, Josh Miranda, and the whole team at the Office of Outreach and Engagement here at the UCF College of Business. And thank you for listening. Until next time, charge on.